All right, we're in the third and the final week of Wonderful, and we're having an amazing time celebrating Christmas and reminding ourselves of the amazing things that God did and has done with the arrival of Jesus. Here's what we said from the very beginning. What God began with the birth of Jesus should fill us with a sense of awe and wonder at the goodness and the greatness of our, of our God. It, it just simply should, that no matter how many times we hear the story and no matter how familiar we become with the story, we should never, never lose our sense of wonder at what God did. And what did God do? What did God begin? We said in the first two weeks is that the arrival of Jesus, God brought some good news. Good news. A Savior has been born. Even better news. A Savior has been born to you and for you. And the best news of all is you, yes, you and me and every person who has ever lived, we can find him. That was the first week. Then last week, we looked at the idea that Jesus was the fulfillment of every promise God ever made about the Savior of the world, that there was no promise that God ever made that wasn't fulfilled in Jesus, that no word from God has ever or will ever fail. And here's why that matters so much. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. God fulfills his promises. He always has. He always will. He did then, and he still does today, and that is wonderful news. Now today, today's going to be an odd sermon because there's not going to be a ton of scripture, although it starts with scripture. Today is going to be a lot of information, and it may seem like information that leads to nowhere, uh, but I promise this does lead somewhere. Um, and it, and it, it may seem like a little bit of this is speculation. And if this seems like speculation, I'm going to go with you. I, I, I certainly agree. This may be speculation, but today I want to actually spend some time talking about the star. Talking about this because one of the things that I feel like has the most wonder around it when it comes to Christmas is the star. We go, well, what was it? What could it be? What, like, how, like, we just, there's this, this like super bright star that hung out in the sky and it was assigned to these people from far. Like, how did they know what, like, what is the, what was that star? What is that star? It carries a lot of wonder. And today, my hope is that as, as we talk and speculate about what the star just might have been, that we don't ruin a sense of wonder, but actually, as we talk about what this may have been, we actually grow our sense of wonder at how big and how strong our God is. From Matthew chapter 2, here's what we learn about, about the star. From Matthew chapter 2, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. So we saw, we saw his what? We saw his star. They saw his star. Today, again, I want to talk about the star that led these men, these magi, these wise people to leave their homes and their own countries to come and worship this baby that had been born. And the reason I want to talk about this is simply this. For a long time, we pretty much had two choices when it came to people of faith in regard to this star. It existed, but we could, but couldn't be explained. So we go, just kind of believe it by faith. I mean, we can't understand it. We can't explain it. There's no way to know what this would have been. There's no way to know what this could have been. There's just, we believe that somehow through time and space that God just miraculously put a star in the sky. These guys noticed it because they were looking for stars in the sky and they figured it out. And so God just did it. And since the Bible says it, we must believe it. Okay. The second, I, the second option is to go, well, that's ridiculous. 
Like, the stars are in the sky. The stars are in their place. God doesn't just pop in one star at a time to make, make, make a point. Although, like, I mean, if we believe that God is all-powerful, God certainly could do that. But the stars are in place. The planets have their motion. And, we, and like, this, this kind of craziness just doesn't happen. That, like, the, the idea that there would be a particular star of Bethlehem that just appeared in the sky. And these people, like, this is just a fanciful idea meant to make the birth of Jesus seem more important than it actually was. So that's the two ideas that we've kind of like had up until a few years ago. A few years ago, there was, there was a, a, a gentleman, a groups of people who also, ha- who happened to be believers in Jesus that began to research and explore whether or not they could actually identify anything in the ancient Middle Eastern skies that would have garnered the attention of wise men from the east. Most likely these wise men came from Babylon. Um, there's some thought that these people were people who came from a line of wise men that began with Daniel during the imprisonment and the exile in Babylon, that they followed the traditions and studied the wisdom of the world, studied the wisdom of, of the world, that they knew about the promises of God and promises of the Old Testament because they flowed with from, from a line of wise men that had been passed down, passed down, passed down, all the way back from Daniel. Um, so these wise men from the east, these astronomers, these astronomers that we're talking about, in fact, did find something absolutely phenomenal. And today I want to share with you what they found. If you want to go a little bit more in depth on what they found, I would highly encourage a visit to www.bethlehemstar.net, or you can actually actually buy their documentary Bethlehem Star on Amazon Prime. The first question that we have to ask is. How could someone know what happened in the sky over 2,000 years ago? Interestingly enough, that is the easy part of figuring this out. In 1609, Johannes Kepler developed what we are still what are still known as the first and second laws of planetary motion. The third law was identified in 1619. With these laws in hand, he could calculate what, we, what he called sky maps, showing the exact positions in space of stars and planets at any point throughout time. That was a, a painstaking process in the 1600s when it was done on paper that has been made much easier through the modern use of computers and the calculation software. And in fact, the people that we're talking about today who did this research, they use a- astronomical software that's been developed to point and position people towards what is happening at any, in the sky at any point on the earth. It's very powerful software. And one of the things Kepler wanted to do with his sky maps was to try to identify the star of Bethlehem. And Kepler's maps actually were great, but Kepler didn't believe he found anything of value or anything that would qualify or quantify as a magnificent, noteworthy happening that could have been the star of Bethlehem. Unfortunately, unfortunately, some of the information that Kepler based his time on was not so great. So again, his maps were fantastic. His time was not completely accurate. Until the early 1900s, there was an unfortunate translation and replication error that existed in one of Josephus's history works. So Kepler based his, when he was looking for the star of Bethlehem, based on something that Josephus had recorded and when Josephus recorded the death of Herod. Josephus was this ancient, it was this Jewish historian uh, who helped who helped Rome try to figure out what was going on in the ancient Middle East. Josephus recorded that 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 when when Herod was died, and Jesus was obviously born a little bit before Herod died. So when Kepler used Josephus's history to look for the death of Herod, which is recorded to be shortly after the birth of Jesus, because of the translation error, Kepler was looking in the Middle Eastern skies around five to seven. BC because he believed that Herod had 
died in 4 BC. Therefore, Christ must have been born shortly before then. In reality, it was realized that there had been a translation and a copying error from Josephus' original manuscripts, and he recorded that Herod actually passed away in 1 BC with recent scholarship, every bit of scholarship from, this, from that point forward, supporting the, the date of 1 BC for Herod's death. In other words, Kepler wasn't looking in the wrong place. He was looking in the wrong time. He was looking for something between 5 and 7 BC when he should have been looking for something between 2 and 3 BC. So armed with this new information, this new team of astronomers and people who were studying and researching this, with modern computer technology and Kepler's laws of planetary motion, they began to look in the Middle Eastern skies to see what people in the Middle East would have seen between 3 and two, or could have seen between three and two BC. And what they looked for had to meet nine requirements based on what is said about scripture in the Bible's account, in Matthew's account. Here were the nine requirements. What they saw would have had to indicate birth. In other words, they came looking for a newborn. They didn't come looking for a teenager. They didn't come looking for a 35-year-old man. They came looking for a newborn, meaning what they saw needed to indicate birth. It had to indicate kingship. They came looking for a king. They came looking for royalty. In fact, they showed up at Herod's palace because they assumed that a king had to come from a, a current king. They were looking for something that, in, they saw something that indicated kingship. They also saw something that indicated a Hebrew or a Jewish nature. They came looking for the king of the Jews. Number four, it had to rise in the east. What they saw must had to, had to rise in the east. There's the Greek word en anatoli, meaning they saw the star rising in the east. Not just that they saw it from the east, although they were from the east, they saw it rising in the east. Number five, it, what they saw appeared at an exact time. Herod asks, when did this appear? And they are able to answer because they knew when it had appeared. It showed up at an exact time and they knew the exact time. Number six, Herod didn't know when it appeared, meaning this wasn't noticeable to everyone, but it was noticeable to people who knew about the stars. And when it was explained to them, this had significant meaning, but not everyone would have noticed. Meaning this was something that happened it was part of the regular night sky. People who just saw regular things may not have known, as Herod wouldn't have known, what this was all about. And number seven, they had, it endured over a considerable period of time, meaning they saw it on their whole journey, and when they got there, they still see what they saw. Now, number eight is it went ahead of them as the Magi traveled from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, meaning they saw it rise in the east, but as they traveled from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, it changes. It seems to change direction a little bit. And number nine, the star stopped. And can a star actually do that? As we're about to find out today, what they found actually tends, actually, actually seems to unlock and meet all nine of their requirements. So these guys first went looking for a th few things that move through the sky because, well, this star moves. So could this have been a meteor? No, meteors don't rise and they don't endure. Could it have been a comet? Comets seem to last a little bit longer. Unlikely because comets were sociologically perceived as negative events and there are no comets reported in ancient history between 4 and 1 BC. And, and, and especially in some cultures, like in, in China in particular, they, they recorded astronomical events like crazy, and they record no comets between 4 and 1 BC. Could it have been a nova? I mean, this, this exploding star, it's almost too obvious everyone would have seen it from, from, from everywhere, and usually exploding stars don't actually last that long. So, 
A working hypothesis that then becomes that the star must have been something in the normal night sky, which was striking when it was understood and explained. And the question becomes, was there anything interesting happening over the Middle Eastern skies between 3 and 2 BC? And the answer is yes, yes indeed. In 3 BC, we get a stunning visual effect in the ancient skies. We get a concentration of relevant symbolism that would have made the Magi commit to a long and detailed study and journey, as well as a star, in fact, that would appear to stop. And so looking at what this may have been, we start with Jupiter. Jupiter is the largest planet in our solar system. Because, of its, because it's the largest in the system's size from ages old until today, it is known as the planet of kings or the king planet because the king is the largest, okay? In September of 3 BC, what's interesting about this, Jupiter began to behave in ways that would meet and fulfill all nine requirements of the description of the star. The king planet began to behave in ways that would meet all nine requirements. At this time, Jupiter, the king planet, came into close contact in the sky with a star. Now, stars are fixed in their position with a star known as Regulus. Now, the Romans called this star Rex. The Babylonians called this star Sheru, which means in all three languages, the king star. The king star. The king planet came in close proximity with the king star. September was also the beginning of the Jewish New Year. So, quick recap of what we have happening so far in the night sky. We have the planet of kings meeting the star of kings at the beginning of the Hebrew Jewish New Year. Now that's pretty cool in and of itself, but it's not necessarily like enough, right? On top of this, we have to actually understand something about how planets appear to move and something that's called retrograde motion. Now this is not primarily a, an astrological term. This is actually an astronomical term. And what it means is that because we watch the stars from a moving platform of the earth, sometimes it will appear as if planets actually are moving backwards. But in the same way that as we, if we're driving faster than a car that we're passing, it appears as if the car begins to back up. The car isn't backing up, it's moving forward. We're just going at a faster pace. Sometimes that happens with the way the earth moves and way the, the way we move in, in, in relation to other planets. This caused, at this exact point in time, it caused what's known as a triple conjunction. So a conjunction is they came close once. A triple conjunction means they came close three times, meaning it would appear on both sides of Regulus, appearing to move back and forth around Regulus as if the planet of kings was dancing a halo or a crown above the star of kings. This is fun, right? This is fun. So we have a powerful visual effect with some pretty meaningful symbolism already. But if we go a little further, this triple conjunction also happened to occur within the constellation Leo, aka the lion. And for anyone looking to the sky for signs of Jewish happenings, Hebrew happenings, the king star and the king planet doing a powerful visual effect within the constellation of Leo when the lion represents the tribe of Judah where it was promised that a king would and a ruler would one day come from. This is unbelievable and unmistakable imagery. Oh, and if that wasn't enough, the constellation right behind the lion at this, right behind Leo the lion at this point, was Virgo, aka the virgin, with a sun rising within it. I mean, like... If you, like, this is so fun. Like, this is amazing. I hope, I hope you're having fun with this. This is awesome stuff. So this is September of 3 BC. 
We have the planet of kings doing a crown over the star of kings within the lion of Judah with the virgin having a sun rising within. I mean, this is, this is fun. This is fun already, but this doesn't quite yet meet all nine requirements. So this is September of 3 BC. And the question then becomes, does anything cool happen in the night sky maybe nine months later around 2 BC? Maybe this is when, when Mary finds out that she's pregnant and, and, or the angel visits her, maybe then nine months later, there would also be something cool happening in the skies and in the planetary motion around then. And again, the answer is, uh, yeah, some cool stuff does. By June of 2 BC, Jupiter had finished crowning Regulus. And at that point, Jupiter headed toward another rendezvous, rendezvous this time with Venus, the mother planet. This is such a show by the stars that whenever it occurs to this day, planetariums around the world try to create events to display it to the world. The planets could not be distinguished from one another. And with a modern telescope, it appears as if a figure eight with the, with the planets circling one another in such proximity that they are rotating, sitting on top of one another, contributing their full brightness to appear as the most brilliant star these magi had ever seen while facing toward ancient Israel. And sure enough, if the Magi reached Jerusalem to find Herod in June of 2 BC and then was told to go to Bethlehem, the star would have appeared to be moving south, the direction that you would move from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, fulfilling eight of the characteristics required of the star. And now there's one final thing. So I have to answer the question, can a star stop? The star stop. Did this star stop? To speak a little Wisconsin to you, oh, you betcha. Oh, you betcha. Again, understanding that we view stars from a moving, rotating platform of the Earth, knowing that planets and stars don't really stop, what happens is the Earth rotates in such a way that we view planets' motion in different ways. And on December 25th of 2 BC, it once again entered retrograde. Jupiter was moving almost completely in sync with the rotation of the earth and walking south and looking south from Jerusalem to Babylon, this Jupiter and Venus conjunction would have appeared to completely stop over the little town of Bethlehem. So here's what seems to have happened. The planet of kings put on a show with the star of kings, where it seems like the planet of kings crowned the star of kings, and it happened right in the middle of the constellation signifying the Lion of Judah, with the constellation signifying the Virgin closely behind, with a new sun rising within her at the beginning of the Jewish New Year. Then nine months later, the king planet goes and gets really close and snugly with the, with the mother planet, forming what appears to be the brightest star that anyone had ever seen. The king and the mother, so close, they're inseparable. It's pregnant with meaning. Funny joke there. And then at just the right time, the king planet entered retrograde motion, appearing to stop in the sky right over Bethlehem. Wow. Wow. Now, that all happened in the starry sky in the dates that we talked about. That actually had, like, there's actually not much debate there. That happened. We don't know exactly when Jesus was born, so the dates may actually be off here. We may never know for sure. We won't know for sure that for sure this side of eternity. We may get up to eternity and have some questions for Jesus and him be like, hey, I just want to, what's your birthday? And he's like, 3 BC, 2, 2 BC. And God, I knew it. I knew it. I said, watch the star of Bethlehem. It's great. But if that's, so, 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 that, so that may not all be true. But if that's all true and that all connects, how amazing is that? 
How amazing is that? How full of wonder is that? That God could do that in the stars and in the heavens and in the planets and the motions and with the motion of the earth and the motion of other planets to speak to the world that the Savior of the world had come into the world. That God controls the heavens, God controls the stars, and at just the right moment in time, God aligned everything perfectly to let people know who were watching the stars that the Savior of the world had come into the world. In Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4, it actually tells us this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. And if you're looking at this and going, this happened around the time that Jesus was born? Uh, yeah, the heavens declare the glory of God. And yeah, the skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. Yeah, they did. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all of the earth and to these wise men, their words to the ends of the world. Meaning not just to the Hebrew people that this was written to in Psalm 19, not just to a Hebrew king, not just to those who could worship at a temple, not just those who had access to the Ark of the Covenant, not just those who kept the, kept the religious law of the, of the Hebrews, but to all those around the world. And here's what I learned from this. And here's what I find so wonderfully amazing about the fact that this might be true, that this might just be exactly what happened and how God let the world know that the Savior of the world had come into the world. I mean, we've got angels talking to shepherds. We've got angels talking to Mary. We've got angels talking to Joseph. We've got angels talking to shepherds out in the middle of the field on the night that Jesus was born. But we also have God showing up and showing out in a way that these men would have found unmistakably clear. And in the middle of that, what I find so striking is that God is in control. That God is in control. That he's in control in ways that speak to shepherds. And he's in control in ways that speak to a terrified young virgin, virgin girl. And he's, and he's in control in ways that speak to a man who is terrified to marry this girl who it seems has gotten knocked up and it's not his. He's, he, God is in control in the heavens in ways that speak to these people who are foreigners and don't know what, and, and, and don't really honestly have any reason to be looking for a Jewish Hebrew king, but God is in control. And I want to, today as we close, I want to be, just talk quickly about three ways that God is in control. God is in control of the heavens and uses them to declare his goodness and greatness. Do you know how big and how vast and how strong you have to be to control the heavens, to control the stars, to control the galaxies, to control the motion, to know the motion of the earth and the motion of the stars in just such a way that if for people who might just be looking for signs in the heavens, you could let them know through the motion of the, that at just the right time, at just the time that your son was coming into the world, to let the world, do you know how big and how wise and how vast and how strong and how in control a God would have to be to do that? That's our God. He is in control of the big, huge things of, of the world that we live in and the world beyond the world that we live in, the stars, the planets. He brings it all into motion to communicate to these people. And in that, we also find this, that God is in control of his plan of salvation and will use anything he wants to make it clear to any, anyone he wants to receive 
his grace. Let me say that again because this is a big, huge thought. God is in control of his plan of salvation, meaning from start to finish, as we talked about last week, God made the promise, he kept the promise. He brought Jesus into the world and the entire time Jesus was in the world, God was in control of the plan of salvation for all of time, for everyone, for all of time. God is in control. And beyond being in control of his plan of salvation, he is also in control of all of the world and is able to use whatever he wants, including the stars in the sky, including anything that we ever see, to speak to anyone that he wants to receive his salvation. Let me just unpack this a little bit. This, this, what God was doing in the skies was unmistakable to the Magi that, were, that what they were seeing and what it meant. They knew based on what they saw that a king had been born and not just any king had been born, but they knew where to go and find him, where to go and look for him. They knew which king had been born. Now they went to the wrong palace. They just made some assumptions there, but they knew the king of the Jews had come into the world. They knew the king of the Jews who was supposed to be the Messiah and the savior of the world had come into the world because of what they saw. It was unmistakable to them. It was unmistakable to them. God knew how to speak to them. God knew how to get what would get their attention, what would speak to their minds and what would speak to their hearts, what would captivate their time and captivate their attention in such a way that they would be willing to take a long journey and get on camels or donkeys or horses and ride for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles to see this newborn king because of what they saw in the heavens. I mean, God knew how to speak to them. But on top of that, these were people who weren't in the religious circle of their day. They obviously knew something about Judaism and these ancient promises somehow, but these were foreigners. By the thinking of the day, they were not recipients of the promises and they were not recipients of the prophecies. But God wanted them to know that the Savior had come for them and for the world. So in his goodness, he found a way to communicate in a way that they couldn't and would wouldn't miss. God is in control of his plan of salvation, and he will use anything he wants to make it clear to anyone that he wants to receive his grace. And that includes you. And that might include right now, that right now, I'm looking right into the camera, right into your living room or your bedroom or your patio, wherever you're watching this, God loves you. And he sent a savior for you so that your sins could be forgiven and you could be brought back to right standing, right relationship with your heavenly father as you trust in Jesus's life, his death and his new life to bring you back to God. God knows how to get our attention and maybe just maybe on YouTube or on Facebook, God wants to get your attention. And he sent me to let you know that he loves you you. And he has a plan of salvation for you. And the plan of salvation was that he sent his son to die for you and to raise from the dead for you. In in, in the ancient days, for these people looking up to the skies, God spoke in the skies. But for today, where most of us spend so much time looking at our, our phones on Facebook or YouTube, God has shown up on Facebook and YouTube And and he has a message for you today that he loves you and he has a plan of salvation for you. And if you'll trust it, you will receive his grace and his salvation. And the final thing is simply this, that God is in control over your life. God is in control over your life. He is in control of the big moments. 
He's in control of the small moments. We all want to trust God for the big moments because we know those big moments, they're just too big for us. He's also in control in the small moments. He's in control of your rejoicing moments. Those moments you go, yes, everything's working. Everything's amazing. Everything's wonderful. Thank God. Yeah, thank God because God is worthy of our thanksgiving and worthy of our worship and worthy of our praise because he's the one who brought about the good. He's also in control of our weeping moments. The moments where nothing is working right. The moments where, 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 where things are broken, where things are destroyed, the moment where things are messed up. He's in control in those moments too. And the good news for you today is simply this, that when you place your trust in Jesus, you are not just placing your trust in a God who saved you and, and, and saves you and then leaves you to figure everything else out on your own. You are trusting a God who saves you and then watches over you and holds your life in his hands and is in control and can protect and can provide and can save and can restore and can handle everything and anything of your life because he is in control over it all. And so the question then becomes this, if God's really in control in that sort of way, if he's in control of the stars in the sky, if he's in control of the heavens, if he's in control of his plan of salvation and can speak it to anybody that he wants, if he's really in that, if he's in control of the big moments, the small moments, the moments that I know he's working and the moments that I know he's not working, like the, like the, the holy cow, God has done amazing, like, and, 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 and I'm not sure he's even working on anything right now. If he's in control in all of those moments, the question is, what is our proper response? And in the rest of Matthew chapter 2, the rest of the account of the story of these magi coming to see Jesus, we're told the rest of, of what their response was to knowing and understanding that God was really in control in these moments. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 9, after they had heard the king, that's Herod, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What's the right response when you realize that God is in control in the ways that our God is in control? That he's in control of everything from the heavens and the above to, the, our, to our lives below. What's the right response when you realize that God is in control in that type of way, in that, with that type of scope? It's to bow down and worship him. It's to bow down and worship. It's that with our lives and with our momentary expressions of worship that we would find it within ourselves to worship the King of Kings, the Savior of the world, the one who holds our life in his hands, the one who holds our world in his hands, the one who is ultimately in control and while he's in control also came to save us, that we would worship him. That with our lives, with our everyday decisions, with our, with our every way we treat people, with our every way, every decision that we make that will honor God or will honor something less than God, that we would choose to honor God. And with our momentary acts of worship, as we're about to have a time of worship in our online service, that we would take a moment and more than just sing a song, we would sing a song where our attention is really devoted to Jesus, not the melody of the song, not the way that the song is played, but simply saying, God, I love you. God, I worship you. God, I honor you in this moment and for the rest of my life. I honor you because of what you have done, because you are in control and because you have saved me. And because you hold my life and you hold my world in your hands, I trust you. That is our right response to what God has done. 
and to who he is and what happened at Christmas and what still happens because of Christmas. Now today, some of you watching, again, I told you earlier that this may just be a moment for you where you realize how much God loves you that he would show up on your timeline, on your newsfeed, for some reason at the top of your YouTube feed, that for some reason God has spoken to you right now to let you know that he loves you so much, that he sent his son to die into the world, to live so that people could know what God was like, to die on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins, and to raise from the dead so that we could know our heavenly father and be brought back to new life in him. And if that's you, I just want to encourage you right now, would you take a moment to make a decision that Jesus Christ is the Lord and the Savior of your life. Don't wait for another moment. Don't wait for another day. As we sing in the Christmas carol, let every heart prepare him room. And maybe just today, today's the day where you prepare some room in your heart to receive Christ as your Savior and as your Lord and as the one who is ultimately in control over your life, in your life, and through your life. Would you receive him today? as we pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your grace for us. Thank you for everything that you are to us. Thank you that you are in control. God, thank you that you are in control of the heavens and the earth. Thank you that you are in control over our lives. Thank you that you are in control of your plan of salvation and that in your goodness and in your grace, God, it's not just for a few people who get it right and who understand all the, all the laws and understand all the rules and understand all the stuff that we're supposed to do, but you made it available and you made it unmistakable to everyone, everywhere, for all of time. And so God, today I simply pray that we would trust you, that we would trust you, that you are in control of our world, that you're in control over our lives, that you're in control when it comes to our salvation. And God, that in every single day of our lives, every single moment of our lives, every single everything of our lives, we would trust you and we would respond to you and your goodness with worship and with awe and with wonder. So God, let that be true of us. Help us to trust you for our salvation. Help us to trust you with our everyday lives and help us to honor you with everything we've got. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.